0: I was uh, blessed to get to go to Nigeria once a number of years ago, and uh, it's it's just a phenomenal place. One of my dearest dearest friends was a pastor there in a tiny little village in northwest Nigeria, and we went to see him. and He took he was pastoring in a, couple, a few different villages, and there's this one sort of village way way off, way in the northeast. Around the northern edge of Nigeria, and uh, he said it was sub Saharan desert, but it seemed pretty Saharan to me. Um, and we went, and I, I'll never forget the, the kids. It was, there's a lot of memories from that trip, but one I'll just share quickly is uh, I, I had just gotten an iPhone. I, they weren't brand new, but they were like a few years old, you know? And, you, and I don't know if you remember when the iPhone came out, but. It like blew my mind. It was like, you could just like swipe. I mean, remember that? Now we all take it for granted. But remember when it was brand new? You were like, what just happened to the world, right? Well, now I was in Africa and I have this phone and I remember like taking pictures of the kids and then showing them their picture. And these kids in this village were just like, I mean, they're just flabbergasted. So at one point I had, and they, plus they'd never seen such a giant, like, Westerner before in their lives. So they're like, who's the giant man with the cool phone? So at one point I had like 300, like, like Nigerian children around me. Like, you know, they're just like, they're kind of jumping, like, take our picture, take our picture. And, and, uh, and then just to talk with the pastors there and to s- see what God's up to, I think I came back more blessed. Um, Than ever, and just a a vision for what God is doing around the world, and that's really what we want to talk about today: is how do we as a church have a vision for what God is doing uh, around the world? But before we jump in there, I I just want to tell one quick snow story because um, I mean, hey, we've all got some snow stories, don't we? You got some good snow stories from the last few days? If you don't have any good snow stories, shame on you because this is like a chance of a lifetime. Oh, here's mine. I our, our neighborhood. We got between a foot and a half and two feet of snow. It was just absolutely snowed in. Um, I live in this little like loop neighborhood, and at the very end of it, there's a hill that kind of goes up, and I live right up on the edge of that little hill. And so it's just a steep enough climb that it's tough. And our neighborhood was just absolutely pummeled um, with snow. So on Friday, the whole neighborhood chips in and says, "We're getting a plow. Like we have to get out of here. Like you know, I, I would not be at church today without the plow." So uh, we hire this plow. He plows in the neighborhood. Did an average job. I've learned that, you know. Plowers for hire in Portland aren't, you know, well, they're Portlanders. That's what I'll just say. We'll leave it there. Um, and I don't mean that with any sort of disdain. It's just honest. Let's just be true. So he does an average job on the neighborhood, but I decide, like, I'm taking my car out. A, I wanted to see if we could get out because I had to practice, and I wanted to see if my wife, you know, could get out later as well i take the car down the hill i go to the store get a bunch of groceries and stuff i come back i get in through the neighborhood kind of weave my way through and kind of barely make it and then i get to the foot of this hill and i'm staring at the hill like up to my house and that's about you know 50 60 yards to my house so i get a good head of steam i make a run at it three quarters of the way up and then just back down uh, and i did that no jo- no joke 15 times Like, it was one of those things where I was like, I am not letting this hill beat me. I refuse to lose against the hill. And the worst part of it was that I've often bragged, you know, because I lived in Minnesota for a number of years, that I'm like a great snow driver. And so my kids know this. And my 13-year-old daughter had gone with me on this little outing. And so she was sitting right next to me, just taunting me the whole time. Oh, Dad, pathetic. I thought you said, you were, you know, and my neighbors are out in their driveways observing now. I can't get the van up the hill. So finally, we parked at the bottom, hike up the hill to the house, utter, like, defeat and, like, embarrassment and... I walk in, I'm still just kind of fuming. I'm like, I can't believe that hill beat me, and I'm so bummed my car has to be parked down the hill now, and my wife's unhappy with me. Why did you take my car? You know. Anyway, (laughs) um, because I love you, honey, and I wanted you to have to walk down the hill. So I'm thinking, 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 how can I beat this hill? So eventually I had this idea. My wife had told me at one point that what some people do is they, if they don't have gravel or sand, they'll use cat litter. And so we didn't have any gravel or sand, and we don't have a cat because cats are the enemy, right, Matt? Yeah, bad on cats. So, um, but we do have dogs, and I do have dog food. So I grab my shovel, you wait, don't, don't mock me just yet wait for it, I grab my shovel, I grab the bag of dog food, I get to the hill, I shovel out some spots, and then I create these two long like tire track runways of dog food, about 15 yards each, up and down the hill, and I'm thinking, this might do the trick, go down, I get in my van, I warm it up again, kids in the the neighborhood have now gathered, they're cheering for me, no, not quite, but it was almost like that, it's like a Rocky movie, I back up, I get a good running start, I get up, it worked, Dog food works. My car is in the garage. I haven't taken it out since, but it is in the garage again. What I could not do by sheer effort and willpower, I could do with the power of dog food. Mission accomplished. So that's my, yeah, it's pretty good. I feel good about myself again. Well, this morning we're talking about a much larger mission than making it up the hill near your house. We're talking today about the mission of God. God's mission in the world. And I want us to ask, to ask a question today, and that's this. What drives us to be a people that care about missions? Like, why do we care about missions? Why are we passionate about sending people out into other places, into other cultures and around the world to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ? What drives us? And at the foundation of that, I think, is not just a conversation about missions, but a conversation about mission, primarily, again, the mission of God. And so we're going to get back to basics here a little bit this morning. I want to read two verses that will probably sound familiar to you, and then we're just going to walk through, and I'm going to pick out some terms. And I want us to think again about God's plans and purposes in the world, how we fit into them, and then how that drives us towards missions. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I just, I'm going to read that again. Just let me invite you just to just listen again. Listen like you haven't heard it before. Listen like it's brand new information. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The first thing I want us to see in these verses is the mission of God. This is, these are verses about mission because it tells us that God has a mission it says, our God, we have a God who's, who comes on mission, who has a mission, who is missional. And the question is, what is it? What is God's mission? Do you see it? It's right in there. This verse is actually uh, uh, interesting because it first of all tells us what the mission isn't. Um, it says, hey, here's 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 what the goal isn't. Here's what the mission isn't. And then we'll tell you what the mission is. Do you ever have to do this? This is a great strategy, actually. Sometimes when people think they know the mission or they have preconceived ideas about what a goal is, you have to tell them, no, 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 that's not the goal. This is what Matt and I have to do. Matt and I uh, coach uh, f- fourth and fifth grade boys basketball. And so because fourth and fifth grade boys are notorious for being great listeners, we have to constantly tell them, okay, we know you guys think you know everything already. But let me tell you what, not, what, what's not the goal, what's not the mission, so that you can hear what is the goal, what is the mission. This is, is especially true on any sort of like, uh, like, uh, drill we do that's a full-court drill. We'll do like full-court dribbling, for example. And as soon as we say we're doing full-court dribbling, every one of the kids on our, on our team thinks they know what the mission is. And the mission is to be the first one down and back. That's the mission. If if I, if I make it down and back before everyone else, I, I've accomplished my goal. Mission accomplished. And we have to say, this is not the goal. This is not the mission to be the first one down and back. Here is the mission. To be as fast as you can while still maintaining control of the basketball. Because even if you're the first one back, if the ball's over there, that doesn't help us, right? So what's not the mission, what is the mission? That's exactly what John does here. And first of all, he tells us what the mission is not. What does he say? He says, God did not send His Son into the world. The mission is not, the goal is not to condemn the world, but, but God sends His Son. God launches into this mission to save the world. God's mission is simple, friends, to save. To save the world, to rescue the world, to redeem and restore and set things in the world back to the way he created them to be. That little word, save, in the language the New Testament is written in, the Greek language, it's the word sozo. And here's what it means. It means to heal, to restore to health, to rescue from danger, to make whole again. It's the same word that's used when the lepers come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, will you save us? Will you heal us? Will you restore us? Will you set us back health-wise to the way God intends us to be? It's the same word the disciples use when they're out on the Sea of Galilee and the wind and the waves and the storms come and they're fearful for their lives and they say, Lord, will you save us? Will you sozo us? Will you rescue us from danger and perishing? This is a word about restoration. And the idea, friends, is this. This world and us in it have been damaged and deranged and destroyed by sin to the point that we are just a fragment of our originally created selves. Things in this world are not the way they are supposed to be. You see this real clearly if you ever go to a place where people are living in just mass poverty. You've seen this real clearly if you've ever walked down the hallway in a children's hospital You see this real clearly if you've ever just stopped and thought, spent some time looking deep into your own mind, heart, soul, motivations. Do any of those things and more and you can see... This is true. Things are broken. Things are not right. This world is not how God longs for this world to be. And so the mission of God is to make things right again, right between us and him, right between us and one another, to bring healing and hope and wholeness to all of creation. That's the mission to save. What's his motive? If that's the mission to save, then what's God's motive? And the verses tell us the this as well the reason god saves his motivation for saving is because he loves for god so loved it's not just he didn't just love he so loved it's a, it's it's like extra love it's a love we can't even fathom i just want to point out a couple things about the kind of love god has here first of all this is not a feeling love this is not saying like i feel all warm and like Toasty about who you are. Like, there's this moment where I looked at you and thought you were cute, and like, oh, yeah. That's not how this is about. Uh, some of you know this. In Greek, there are four words um, that all mean love. We only have one word for love in English, and it means a whole variety of things. But in Greek, they had four different words. Three of those words are about feelings feelings you have towards a person, a, a, a child, a parent, a, a friend. How do you feel in a romantic relationship? But this word, the word used here, is the word for love that is not about a feeling. It's the word agape. And it's a word of the will. It's something that is not felt but chosen. It's something that's determined. It says, no matter how I feel, this is how I will act towards you not dependent on feeling, not even dependent on how you make me feel. It's just how I will choose to treat you. That is agape. And this form of agape is actually a verb. It's not just something. It's something that moves. It's something that acts. It's something that does. For God so loved, He's loving. He's acting in a loving way. Here's a definition I read this week of agape. Agape sacrifices for the other's benefit. Agape voluntarily suffers, embraces inconvenience, and takes on discomfort for the benefit of another. You see, here's the thing about agape love. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It's also the kind of love He calls us to have for one another, for our spouses, for our friends, for our enemies see, agape love is Christian love. It's not, I want you to feel this way about everyone. It's, I want you to choose to act in this way towards other people. Agape love, friends, here's how you can measure it. Here's how you can know if you have it. Am I willing to sacrifice... The relationship between agape and sacrifice is always direct. In other words, where there is agape, there will be sacrifice. Where there is agape love, there is a willingness to sacrifice for the other, to go through discomfort, hardship, difficulty, struggle. If you're not willing to sacrifice, then you don't have agape love. This is why when I tell my wife I love her but then when the dogs wake up real early and start to stir and I pretend like I'm asleep so I won't have to be the one to let them out that's not agape love that's just I want to sleep love which isn't love at all really It's also why when my wife asks me in the middle of the Seahawks playoff game, after I've already been to the store, and I'm sitting in my cozy pajama shorts, watching by the fire the Seahawks play, and she says, I am out of soda, would you run to the store and get me some? And I say, yes, which is what I did yesterday, best husband ever. That's agape love. Why? Agape love says, I will sacrifice, I will suffer, I will lay my life down for you. Let me ask you this question. What do you really love? Here's how you know. What am I willing to sacrifice for? Where in my life do I sacrifice? Who are the people that I sacrifice for? What are the things that I sacrifice for? Look at where you sacrifice and you'll see where you love. And then the second question is this. Are you sacrificing anywhere for the mission of God? How much... Are you willing to sacrifice for God and his plans and purposes in the world? Are you willing to sacrifice your time? Are you willing to sacrifice your energy? Are you willing to be inconvenienced for God and his plans and purposes? Or do you just serve God when it's easy, when you get something out of it? Because, friends, that's not agape love. It's not the way God loves us. It's not the way he calls us to love him. The more I love, the more agape, the more I'll sacrifice. So that's the mission of God, to save, the motive of God, to love. And now we talk about the means of God. In other words, how does God accomplish this? How does God accomplish his mission in the world? How does he get it done? How does he get the saving of the world done? And the answer is right in this passage again. The means by which God accomplishes his mission are Through him, through Christ, through Jesus. The Bible tells us that the forces and the powers that have held the world captive and wreaked havoc and destruction in our lives um, and all of creation, they have been defeated by Jesus. The forces that we could not defeat through our own effort, through our own willpower, through our own stubbornness, God has defeated through him, through Christ. Listen to how Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins, when, when you couldn't make it happen on your own, when there was no way in the world you were getting that van up that hill by sheer stubbornness or willpower or effort, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, it's, it's through him. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's in the cross that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. God has laid down the path so that we can make it up the hill. That's the good news, friends. God, through Christ, has made a way. God has come to save. That's his mission. He does it because of his great love. That's his motive. And that he has done the work of reconciliation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's his means. Next, let's talk about the magnitude. What's the magnitude of God's mission? What's the scope of his mission? How wide does this mission of God reach? How wide does it spread? And and we see the answer again right in these verses. The magnitude of God's mission is the world. It's not just a select group. It's not just a small number of people. It's the world. God comes to accomplish this mission in the world, for the world. He loves the world. I did a search today um, on Google, and we all know that Google's right about, everything, but we'll just trust it for right now. How many people right now, this morning, are alive and living on our planet? Do you know? Anyone else? Matt, you're laughing, you don't know? Seven billion. billion. The answer is seven and a half billion. It's actually 7.477 billion, so we have seven and a half right here. Seven and a half, roughly, billion people. Can you comprehend that number? Am I the only person? And I was like a math major in college. But seven billion—it's hard for me to wrap my brain around seven and a half billion. How many that really is? Here, I'll help you with it this way. Um, you could buy two hundred and fifty thousand cars at, at thirty thousand dollars each with seven point five billion dollars. Um, if you were to travel seven point five billion miles, you could fr- fly around the world three hundred and one thousand times. You could take a round trip to the moon fifteen thousand six hundred and ninety seven times. If you could save ten thousand dollars every single day, then it would only take you two thousand fifty five years to save seven point five billion dollars. If you could live for seven point five billion minutes, you would live until you were fourteen thousand two hundred and sixty nine years old. Does anyone want to live that long? No. Here's the point. The magnitude of God's mission and motive and means is enormous. It's for the entire planet. This is why, at the end of Matthew, when Jesus is going to be with the Father, he tells his disciples here's the scope of the mission, here's the scope of the task go make disciples of all nations. And that word nations, it does not refer to political nations or geographic locations. It's actually the word ethnos. It's the Greek word from which we get our word ethnicity. It's talking about groups of people. He says, go and make disciples of all the groups of people in the entire world. You, church, you, followers of Christ, you go and make sure every single person, all 7.5 billion, have the chance to put their trust in me. And when when you think about the the mission of God on that magnitude, when you think about how huge that is, and you think about how daunting of a task that is, at least for me that that seems almost paralyzing, completely overwhelming. And so I want to close with the method. What's the method? What's the method God uses to accomplish his mission? What is his strategy for advancing his mission across the entire planet? And I think we find, again find it in our passage for today. In John 3.16, it's one very simple word. It's the word send. What's God's strategy? How does he accomplish this? What's his method? He sends. In verse 17, or it says he sends his son. In verse 16, it says he gave his son. But then in 17, he says he sends his son. How does God give us his son? He sends us his son. And this is important, friends, because the word mission, when we talk about being people of mission, we talk about being missional, we talk about sending missionaries, it all comes from this word, send. Send is uh, a word that comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. See, here's the deal. At the core of God's mission is this method, To send. First and foremost, he sent his son, but then, then, listen to this. Later on in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is talking to God, he has this conversation with God, Jesus. He's talking to the Father. But you you ever have a conversation like this where you're talking to someone, but you really want these people over here to listen to what you're saying? It's like, I'm talking to you, but it's really more for you. This is what's happening here with Jesus. He's talking to his Father, but he says explicitly in the passage, Hey God, I'm saying all this to you, but we both know it's just so they can hear what I'm saying. We we both know it's just, it's for their benefit, so they can pick up on what's really happening here. And this is what Jesus says to the Father, and in, you know, in retrospect also to His followers. He says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As I came into the world on mission from you, now they go into the world on mission from Me. My mission has now become their mission. The mission of reconciling the world to you that I have accomplished through my death and resurrection has now been placed in the hands of my followers. You see, friends, this is huge. Don't miss this. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus is not only to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for yourself. It's not just about making sure things are right between you and God. That is a huge part of being a Christ follower. But it's not the only part. Another part, another important central biblical part is to also take on the mission of God in the world as your mission. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, God's mission becomes your mission. And let me just clarify real quick. Because January is, I think, the most selfish month of the entire calendar year. January is the month where we all make these resolutions. We come to the new year and we say, hey, here's what I'm going to do different this year. Here's some things I'm going to change this year. I'm going to be more healthy this year. I'm going to lose some weight this year. I'm going to be more responsible with my money this year. I'm going to be physically fit and financially fit and I'm going to be a better father and a better husband and a better wife and spend more time with my kids and you know take that vacation I hours. Know, all these resolutions. This is how my life is going to change. And then, because we're church people, we'll throw some spiritual ones in there as well. And also this year, I'm going to pray more, and I'm going to give more, and I'm going to go to church more, and I'm going to read the Bible more. But let me tell you something, behind every single one of those resolutions for most of us is this ultimate goal, is this primary mission. I want my life to be better. I want to be happier. And I think if I lose weight, I'll be happier, if I'm healthier, I'll be I'll be happier. I think that if I have more money, I'll be happier. I think that if I read the Bible, I'll be happier. I think if I pray more, I'll be happier. But what's the primary goal? What's the primary mission? So I can have a happier life. Do you see what you're doing when you do that? I do it all the time, by the way. I do it all the time. But do you see what we do when we do that? We don't say, God, I want to be a part of your mission. We say, God, would you come be a part of my mission? Hey, God, I have this mission. I want to have this really great, awesome, happy, satisfied, fulfilled life. And if you could come into my life and help me out with that, it would be awesome. So this year, for my resolutions, I'm going to pray more. So I can get from you, like, the accomplishment of my mission. And God says, okay, like, we can work with that for a little bit, but that's not really my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is not to come and be a part of your mission. My ultimate goal is that you would come and be a part of my mission. To advance the gospel. To advance the kingdom. To bring healing and hope and restoration to the world. To save the world. You could be a part of the greatest, most enormous mission in the history of the universe. To save the world. You could be a part of God's mission. So don't resolve to let God be a part of your mission this year. Resolve that you'll be more part of His. Has a little bit of a rant, sorry. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'm, I'm almost done. We're almost done here. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has died on the cross. He has risen from the grave. He is just about to go back to the Father. And uh, the disciples come and they think like, game over. Like, the victory has been won. Sin and death have been defeated. This must be it. And they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, is, is it over now? Is the mission complete? And what does Jesus say? He says, the victory has been won. Sin and death have been defeated, but the mission is not over. The mission is now yours. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus says, the victory is won, but the mission's not over. The good news, the fact that God has now made a way for things to be made right is available to everyone, and now it is your job, your mission, to make sure everyone hears it. The way the Father sent me, and I sent the Spirit, and the Spirit sends you, you are now going to send others out into the world. With the goal that all nations and all ethnicities and all people to the ends of the earth will be reached. Friends, do you want to know why we are ascending church? Do you want to know why we believe in missions and missionaries? Why we send people out? Here's why. Because we serve ascending God. God. A God whose strategy to reach this world and to offer hope and healing and life and restoration is to send His Son, His Spirit, His church, His people... And you may not be able to advance the mission of God overseas or in some foreign nation or with another ethnicity or ethnos. Maybe that's not even your calling. Most likely it's not. For most of you, your calling is right here. Right here in your Jerusalem. Right here in Beaverton or Portland or Bethany or Cedar Mill or Springville Springville or Hillsboro. That's your Jerusalem. That's your calling. That's where you are sent. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be on mission. You are a sent one. But some are called to be missionaries, not the same, not the same. See, a missionary is someone who leaves their culture to go and share the good news, to go and advance the kingdom. A Christian is someone who's also on mission, but just in their culture. It's not a value statement. One is not better than the other. They both are extremely important. And let me tell you why missionaries are so important, because they connect us to God, what God is doing in the world, to God's larger mission and vision in the world. You see, it's so easy for me just to get focused on my little life, on my little stuff, on my little ministry, on, my, um, on the things God is doing in and through me. And then I get a part of the church and it expands a little bit. Oh, I'm about to something bigger. I'm a part of this church here. But it's so easy for us as a church just to get focused on what we're doing right here and what missionaries do for us as they connect us to this fact. God is doing stuff around the globe. They enable us to be a part of what God is doing to advance his mission around the world. And friends, that's why missions is so important. Not just because our missionaries need us. Our missionaries need us. They need us to engage them. They need us to pray for them. They need us to support them. They they need us to encourage them. They need us to sacrifice for them. To sacrifice for the mission of God in the world, right? To say, there's some things I can't afford now because I'm supporting a missionary. I'll, I'll spend some of my time. I'll sacrifice some of my time to pray for a missionary, to find out what they're doing, to support them, to encourage them. They need that, but friends, we need them. We need them to keep a global perspective, to keep God's heart for the world. Do you know you could be a part of what God is doing around the world? It's not that hard. Just get connected to a missionary. Just engage a missionary. You could join with the Williams or the Moors to bring the scriptures to people in their own language. There are people in our world who cannot read the Bible because it's not translated into their language. We have missionaries working to change that fact. You could be a part of what the Stevens are doing. Helping develop kingdom-advancing business models that do things like provide jobs uh, for girls who've been rescued out of sex trafficking. You could join with Stephanie Rogers in planting churches in Sylvania through reaching the youth of this post-Christian agnostic culture. You could be a part of that, what God is doing there. You could join Jenny Jensen in, in sending out missionaries and mission teams around the globe. You could join the Galloway. Sean was up here earlier. They're They're sending teams onto college campuses. They're working with A team over in India right now rescuing girls off the streets giving them hope and a future and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them you could partner with Charlotte Duell to work on community development and equipping spiritual leaders in unreached parts of Central Asia you could be a part of that, you could be a part of the Palmers equipping and empowering pastors, you could join the Palau clan and be a part of hundreds of thousands of people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ every year you could be a part of what God is doing around the world by just engaging with them missionary and so the call today the challenge is this be a part of the mission of god the global mission of god and just connect just engage one of our missionaries my hope and dream would be this that every single person that calls cedar mill bible church home would be engaged with one of our missionaries at least just one that you'd be praying for that missionary that you'd be encouraging that missionary because it is lonely out there and it is difficult, and that you'd be supporting that missionary through our missions fund or maybe even directly with them, with your time, with your money, with your efforts. And so today, as we, as we close the service, before I send you back out to accomplish the mission of getting home through the snow, we're going to think a little bit more about the mission of God. So here's what I just want to ask you to do. Our, our, the gathering of our church is not over. Our time in here is over, but the church is going to continue to gather in the lobby. Our missionaries are out there. Before you leave today, speak with one of them. Maybe just to say thanks for what you do. Maybe just to encourage them. Maybe just to get some information. Maybe just to start to think and pray about who is the missionary from our church that I want to partner with to accomplish the global mission of God, to be a part of what God is doing around the world. So this is it today. We've already had communion. Jerry's not coming back up. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, you can go into the lobby. Is that all right? Okay, pray for me. Father, thank you for the enormity of your mission, the inclusivity of your mission, the way uh, you've made a way for us when we could not do it on our own. I pray today that our missionaries would be encouraged and that we'd be encouraged by partnering with them and that we would just get a glimpse, just a small glimpse into who you are and what you're up to around this great planet of ours. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.